Hey, Pete, how are you? Eh, all right. What are you up to? Not too much. You, you look a little glum. Is it because the weather or the, or the season's changing? Uh, I don't know. It's just that time of year where I don't know. <laughs> you look like you need a little fun in your life. I could use some fun. Have you ever checked out fun.com? Fun.com? Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, so you should go to fun.com and check out all the cool merch and toys and collectibles and clothing and so on and so forth. And believe it or not, the Retro Network is partnering with them right now and you get a 15% promo on anything you purchase in your transaction. 20% even. Is it really 20%? <laughs> <laughs> well, right, people, we tried, but we failed. Yes, Retro Network and Box Office 30, among the other podcasts, has teamed up with fun.com to bring you some fun. Check out all their amazing different products. They've got toys, they've got accessories, they've got collectibles, clothes, they've got costumes. I mean, it's just a bunch of fun stuff, right? <laughs> and for the record, Pete said 15% first, and then I was like, oh, it's 20. But no, it's 15. Okay, cool. Well, it's 20. Good. So there we go. Yes, and as a matter of fact, that 20 is off your entire order, which is amazing. So it's not even just 20% off a single item. It's off your whole order. So that means you can order a whole bunch of stuff. And by the way, this is tied into that, like, holiday spirit and everything that's coming up right now in the season so you got a whole bunch of shopping to do you got your friends you got your family you got your co-workers there's a little something for everybody on fun.com so you gotta head over there check it out lots of great stuff buy a little something for yourself treat yourself <laughs> and have some fun this holiday yeah. there you go there you go yeah and in case you don't know how to spell it, it's F-U-N.com. <laughs> I hope we're having fun doing this promo. I, I'm having fun doing it. I'm having fun.com doing this promo. Fun.com. 20% off. We should probably tell them the promo code. Yes, that'd be good. I don't, I don't know it. <laughs> so if you want to take advantage of this offer, the coupon code is TRN Holidays 2021. That's TRN, as in the Retro Network, Holidays 2021. 20% off your entire order valid through January 7th, 22. I'm having fun. <laughs> I'm lonely. I like fun. <laughs> is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And, and this, this is Box, Box Office, Office 30. 30. Hello and hello and 
Welcome to a hopefully much improved episode of Box Office 30 for November 1991's Recall segment. I am Pete and I am joined by my co-host and good buddy Michael. How are you doing, sir? I'm well. I'm not hitting the record button. So that's, <laughs> uh, first, I, I, I will say, as always, I didn't even listen to Pete's like little <laughs> mini segment because I just I was so devastated and heartbroken and embarrassed that I was like, I can't even bring myself to listen to a 10 minute explanation <laughs> as to what happened. And so, you know, for everybody, I apologize. It was so much fun. We had a great time doing it. And next time I will remember to press the record on both my <laughs> audio channel and Pete's audio channel. And I will tell you for those of you out there, Adam from the wizards podcast gave me a solid ribbing for forgetting because I've broken his chop several times for forgetting to hit record on our podcast. So I got my comeuppance. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, it happens. And again, I, I feel like the um, biggest losers in this situation was just the listeners, just because you and I had a blast. <laughs> oh my God. I, I actually great. thought it was one of our, uh, just because I think, you know, it's Mike and I have been doing this, over um, the internet since the beginning. And we were kind of explaining this a little bit, um, you know, when we were in person, but uh, it just so happened that I had gone out to the Island uh, to see some family. So on the way back, we stopped at Mike's, we did the live recording there. And even though we didn't get the whole recording, you know, kind of odd, we got Mike and we got this hour 17 of just dead air for whatever reason on the other side, I, we had a blast and I think it's just because it's like that like in-person energy and we were feeding off that with each other. So sorry yeah. folks, but you know, we're going to make it up for you tonight because we're going to um, include the recall segment, um, at least informational section of that. And I think Mike and I, because we were both feeling bad, did a little extra homework for this episode each. I, I even started watching the original as well. I got about three quarters <laughs> of the way through it as well. Uh, so I have a lot of thoughts. Well, fair enough. And, and I, in my way, to try and counteract that, did about three quarters of the making of Cape Fears 1991. Really? Yeah. So, so we've got some extra stuff to chat about. But, um, you know, I figured we'd start things off just – because we missed it doing the other um, episode a little bit on like the informational stuff. So in case you didn't check out our little half episode explaining, we are in fact doing Cape fear. Um, and Mike and I were like <laughs> at odds is maybe the best way to say it with that. Cause we were a little surprised that that's the way that the voting went. Although now that I've seen Cape fear, I realize what the, uh, the whole thing is. You guys wanted to see that movie, you bunch of perverts. Oh my yeah, gosh. yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> woo, let me tell you, in in comparison to the original, it is it is. Uh, woo. <laughs> and and I've got you know some funny things to say about that as well. That I you know, as I was researching, basically, did you know that originally Steven Spielberg was supposed to direct this movie? That was something that came up in my research as well, and I was really surprised by that do you want to kind of so, tell us a bit about it <laughs> so yeah so apparently spielberg was supposed to make this movie but he thought the movie was too violent and too dark and and just too 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 like depressing and vulgar. yeah i read a quote that he's just like i wasn't in the mood to make a movie like this but yet but yet here's the weird part about that he traded this with scorsese 
to make Schindler's List. Yeah, which apparently Scorsese was like somewhat developing at that time. Yeah. So yeah, really interesting trade-off. Um, I, I was reading another further article about it that, it, I mean, it kind of made sense in a way that this would be like more Scorsese's kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, um, Spielberg, you know, especially with Schindler's List, felt like he wasn't even totally up for doing that at that time. He tried to pass it off to several different other directors, Brian De Palma and a few others. Ultimately, he ended up doing it. But I guess, you know, in the end, they kind of both were the right man for the right movie with this sort of like interesting movie script swap that they had. And I also saw a note that essentially this was the first in kind of like a um, deal that like Amblin Entertainment, which is Spielberg's company, had sort of like made, you know, so like this was an interesting departure for Scorsese because this was kind of like essentially his first like big budget film. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he had done Goodfellas, he had done others, but they were kind of essentially like, like considered to be a lower budget, non, you know, huge studio sort of film. The mm -hmm. interesting thing for me, and, and we'll get into this as we go is like, I don't know if it, at least at that time worked for him. I felt like I kind of, jived more with some of his like more low budget at that time productions but again we'll we'll get into that as we go so as i was saying cape fear is directed by some guy named martin scassese scassuzzi something like that yeah <laughs> he's directed a film or two by the looks of it but i don't he's know directed man. A film or two. <laughs> uh yeah none of you are probably all that interested in listening letting me listing those out um so i don't know you may not have heard of him uh, this movie is written for the screen by Wesley Strick and is adapted from a novel called The Executioners by John D. MacDonald. As you pointed out, it is um, previously um, a film in the 60s, right? Do you remember the exact year off the top of your head? Uh, like 62? Yeah. Um, with Gregory Peck? Yes. Um, who who is in the movie? Shows up again later here, and Robert Mitchum, who also, also shows, up shows up in the movie. In, yeah. in the movie here, um, and uh, it st film stars of I don't know random cast of uh, C listers. This Robert De Niro guy, Nick Nolte, Jessica Lang, Juliette Lewis, Joe Don Baker, who's maybe my favorite character in this in this film. Robert Mitchum has mentioned Gregory Peck has mentioned among plenty of other um, kind of uh, character actors and recognizable faces. Uh, lots of people that I feel like end up on uh, law and order at one point. Or yeah. another. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, this was our film. Uh, again, we were a little like put out that we weren't watching Adam's family. I think overall um, I liked this movie better than I thought I was going to going into it. Uh, agreed. 100%. But with that said, and again, we'll we'll dive into this as we get into my notes, which might not be friendly at times. Um, I feel like when I try and think it, like like I've been like I watched this movie the other day, and I've been trying to like let it stew in my mind ever since. And then, particularly after watching this um, making of featurette which by the way, it was like an hour plus featurette, which is why I didn't quite get to finish it. Mm. You know, they're talking a lot about like the subtlety of this and the thought behind that and like all this sort of thing. And I'm like, I feel like this movie is either deeper than I realized. And it's uh, like over my head 
Mm-hmm. Or it's not as deep as they think it is. <laughs> okay, I, I I can I can piggyback on that a lot. So I, I don't know if you remember when I was when we were at undergrad, I took a lot of classes about Alfred Hitchcock and and studied took like really deep dives on Hitchcock. And both this and the original movie are homages to Alfred Hitchcock. So much so that like they they've literally cited it as like as close to a Brian De Palma style Hitchcock film as you can possibly get. Um, it has a lot of the elements of a Hitchcock movie, um, staircases, water, cars, uh, the MacGuffin. Well, even uh, just some of the ways it's shot. You even know the what I mean? Like, for sure. The, the, the whole thing is, is – is Yeah, I even, you know, I, I even mentioned this sort of thing in my notes at a point that the film in recreating a film from the 60s – pays a lot of homage to the style of those sort of movies of right. the 60s. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But in a way, it left me wondering why then readapt it? You know, like, why, like if you're going to take like a, like a 60s, previously done in the 60s movie story, change that story quite a bit and then readapt quite it in the it's 90s a- and then like pay homage to how they did it. Like, why? Like, you know, it's like, it's such a weird exercise. And I felt like I was like running into like sort of the oddities of some of these things throughout watching it then like versus like just doing something kind of like new, newish, you know? And I mean, I don't know. It, so, so here's, <laughs> the, here's the thing, like, the, you know, um, like the first movie feels a lot less Hitchcockian than this movie. But but also, I think this is uh, Scorsese's idea of what a Hitchcock movie should look like. The first half an hour is a mess. Like, it's really disjointed. The cinematography... Well, I guess this is my problem with this movie all. I feel like the movie overall is a mess. You know what I mean? Like, I, and, and again, I'll have more specific notes and we should probably just dive into them. But I... I feel like there's entire sections where the movie's just really meandering back and forth. And I get like that. They're like trying to essentially like A to Z they're trying to build throughout the movie, this tension, the the mania of Max Katie, you know, like dismantling these, this guy's life and his family and all this sort of thing. But, and again, that's, that's very Hitchcockian and sort of the way that it, it, it does this sort of thing too. You know, suspense is Hitchcock's thing. And this movie is certainly filled with suspense. Like I will right. give it that, but I, but I feel like there's like a few scenes where we're just reliving the same scene over and over in different yeah. flavors. It's like Max Katie shows up at a place, somebody, you know, usually Nick Nolte's character of Sam, um, or is it Max? I keep flipping the Sam and Max. I guess he's Max. Max confronts him. Is it Max, Katie, and no, Sam? No. Max, Katie, and, and Sam. So Sam So Sam no. confronts him. They talk. They go their separate ways. Five minutes later, he shows up again. He confronts him. They go their separate And it's really just that, like, repeating ad nauseum, like, throughout yeah. the film. Or, like, he'll show up and talk to his wife. Or he'll show up and talk to his daughter. And it's just like... He shows up and talks to the PI. It's just like, ah, like how many more times could he possibly do it? What's What's funny is like there a lot of the things you see in the this version of the movie are 
reimaginings of what happened in the original one. But here's where this movie has difficulty. And what that is, is it's got the amazing Spider-Man complex, right? (laughs) So we saw all these things happen. So how do we tell this, you know, origin story without saying it the exact same way as it was done previously in just a fine manner? And the thing is like, so the original version of the movie, Max Cady is, he's a violent person, but he's not like as violent as this version. So like, let's, let's chat about that for a minute. Cause I don't think I've seen the original and I know that you watched it. My understanding from just like a little bit of reading I did is that like in the original, the guy's just like a maniac that's after them. You know, like one of these like, nondescript like oh that guy's a maniac like there's not really necessarily that like in this like it's very specific that he's a rapist that you know he was the defender for in court 14 years ago um and he doesn't like how he defended him and we'll get into that but uh therefore he's terrorizing him like what is the character in the original is it just that there's this madman and just happens to target them or is there a relationship there is a relationship so apparently uh, as opposed to it being 14 years in this movie, in the original, it's eight years prior. Gregory Peck's character witnessed Max Cady beating up some woman, like violently beating her up or whatever. And he testified. He was the person that testified and told the court that, so yes, witness, th- yeah. he was a witness. Yeah. And, and he's the one who got him sent away because of his testimony. So now Max Cady's pissed off at the fact that this witness, you know, sold him out essentially and is now out to get him and his family because of it. See, and again, it's actually a weaker It's It's like a plot. weird movie to review because like, you know, I did take my notes and like I'd like to go through them. But like this was one of probably my biggest sticking points watching this whole movie. The setup that – he was going after essentially his public defender Yeah, made no sense to me. And I get, I get it. I get that they're talking about that. Essentially he had a little extra. Well, all right, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's do the notes. And then by proxy, we'll circle back to this point. So otherwise I feel like we're just going to go all over the place. So this movie opens up again in a very sixties Hitchcockian way with this like really weird, um long opening intro sequence you know like again older movies used to open with all, all the, the titles the titles, all the titles the came in the beginning happening yeah. at the front not at the end and this was so hitchcock with like just these like weird like like an image of like a bird and like an image of some eyes and like you know, like just like like weird wavy like <laughs> so he- like it leans so heavy into it and even the way they they pop the names on the screen i thought i'm like this is a, a copy of, I had that I gave Pete off of a DVD. And I'm like, it looked almost like, like a, a scrambled VHS copy, the way that the, <laughs> the lettering was kind of ble- bleeding through each other. It looked, it just looked weird. And and the the inverted negative film look was like really annoying at points. And I was like, what is going on? I, I'll, you know, I have notes on this later, but let's just address it now. What the heck is with the negatives? I don't get it. It doesn't. It doesn't pay anything off in the movie at all. It does not. I pay thought anything. this was such an odd choice. It, I'm trying to remember. Was there? 
was there something like rear window or something that used negative of film as well? So like what we're talking about here for like maybe, maybe the, the non film inclined or something Vertigo like that is, is basically like, especially when you're shooting with film, you, you probably all heard of the thing that you get a negative back. And then what you do is you shine the light through the negative and then you get a positive and the positive is what you see in the film. But what they're allowing it to do is basically flip and become yeah, you're inverted seeing, the negative you're, you're, essentially. you're seeing the negative yeah. so instead of like everything looking like normal color or whatever you're basically seeing this like weird odd like black and white inverse of what everything should look like and they do this at different points throughout the movie for no reason sh- well like for like shock value yeah. Like you know, like like they'll see they, somebody they, they and like you know, it'll, at times it's it'll like funny. it'll be like Wee! and like it'll just like flip to the inverse and like I don't know, just it just I don't know. It was a really odd choice, particularly at for Scorsese. End. Yeah, I don't feel like this is like a trait of him and his filmmaking. Um, so that's why I was trying to think. Like I was like racking my brain on Scorsese or on um, Kubrick Hitchcock. films and things and Hitchcock films and like. Is this like a thing in one of those that I'm just like he's again paying homage to? I'm not sure. <laughs> I really can't remember what the the reasoning for this is. I didn't find even in the in the making of like them talking about like why they were including this. Um, but there's a lot of other questionable graphical choices that we'll get to elsewise. So uh, it is worth mentioning fabulous adapted score. They pulled a bunch of score from the original. Yeah. They pulled some score from um, some other also Hitchcock films and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of remixed them and, and played them in this. Um, so the score is amazing. Yeah. Um, the score is, is beautiful. And it's really kind of chilling at times too. Definitely. Um, yeah. I thought they used that to really good. It's one of the strongest service. parts of the movie is the score. So we open the movie on Juliette Lewis in this kind of deadpan narration. Um, and we and we go back to it later at the end of the movie. And the only other time you hear it is just the beginning. Although I thought an interesting choice was like we see her in the beginning. She's like sort of like talking to us. Like at the end, I don't necessarily remember that it's her in that same room talking so, about it. But it does end on like the close up of like her, her, her eyes. Her eyes, yeah. Um, which I think was also in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you, was this something from the original no, film? Did they not at have, all. No. Yeah, this again seemed like an odd choice. And the only thing I can think of is, again, this is Juliette Lewis's breakout role. Um, and she does an incredible job. Like, that's the other thing I got to say. I have issues with this movie, but the cast was superb. Like, everybody yeah, was completely yeah. on point. And, and I don't really Like, again, from a lot of movies, he can be very frightening. He was terrifying in this yeah. role, like really and truly. Like he's frightening and points at like Raging Bull, like some of his other movies. This was utterly terrifying. This character, so I really do have to give him a lot of props on um, his portrayal of this character in this. Uh, and for Juliette Lewis, um, who's only seventeen when she's making this film, um, playing a fifteen-year-old. Um, up against somebody like Robert De Niro, you know, I mean, like it, she really proved her, her chops, you know, early on. So I really got to give her, um, a lot of credit as well. Um, but weird kind of narration scene, uh, flips over to him in jail. 
um, doing some uh, epic chin-ups. We've seen this before. <laughs> you know, I feel like this is like a trend. Like when we come and see Sarah Connor for the first time in T2, we made the point of mentioning, oh, it's that jail scene. She's got to be doing chin-ups. You know, like, pull up. yep. Here he is. So it's like, it's like, you know, a little trope that we uh, are certainly running into over and over. I thought uh, something funny of note, particularly to you and I, is that um, it's panning through all this kind of like iconography that he has on his wall, sort of these religious icons looks like he had a couple dictators. And then he randomly had like black bolt from the, you know Inhumans. why? No, <laughs> they, they, they pay it forward later. Black bolt is an inhuman. And at the end of the movie, spoilers for everybody. He said that he's become something more than human. Okay. Yeah, because <laughs> at first I was like, "Why would he have Black Bolt and and Marvel on his wall?" I'm like, "What, what a random pull!" And and then he pays it forward later that he says that he's become more than human. Which I mean, something else to know too about Black Bolt for the uninitiated is that basically his power is if he like voice. opens his mouth and speaks, it's like a nuclear bomb going off. Yeah, and. You know, essentially kind of one of the things that they keep talking about in the documentary about Max Cady is that he sort of sees himself as this like avenging angel and like the voice of God and mm-hmm. and, and all this sort of thing. So like you can kind of see that playing into that a little bit, too. I think it's like a little bit of an Easter egg because it's a stretch that I mean, like, again, like I don't know how popular the Inhumans were in 1991 versus, you know, at other points. I feel like the Inhumans have always kind of been a little bit of a a backseat sort of you know set of characters but um maybe somebody would have seen that and been like oh but i feel like that's mostly an easter egg to your average movie going audience that's not used to seeing you know three different marvel movies a year the the other thing that's interesting you know as you said he quotes scripture a lot um we also see that his body is covered in tattoos which in the first movie the, the original actor is not covered in any tattoos. Uh, he's very clean cut, very, you know, clean shaven and everything. Um, a lot of this character of um, Max Cady, the version that they do in this movie, is very similar to the character we see in... Um, you ever see, seen the original Red Dragon Manhunter? by michael mann i know you you mentioned that too like when we were even doing the hannibal stuff but i i still haven't saw that yeah it's it's the so basically that character is very like as if he's an avenging angel he's covered in tattoos he's you know somewhat disfigured extremely muscular and de niro is very much like it's almost as if they kind of copied that idea as well in this movie because yeah well i mean it's worth mentioning a few things about de niro like with that with the tattoos and with this character you know just like some props for him so like um he put on a ton of muscle um for this role um in particular and then uh all of those tattoos were actually done in the vein of how you would do normal tattoos, except they were done with like a vegetable based ink. So that way they lasted for like the duration of the filming, but then faded away after that. Um, rather than just like, you know, like the normal, like movie tattoo, which is essentially just like stencil sort of stuff that's applied. Um, and then another kind of interesting fact is that he hired a doctor and gave him $5,000 to grind down his teeth. 
to yes. make him look more menacing, and then paid again later to have them essentially fixed after the roll. $20,000 to have them fixed. <laughs> yeah. And so, on top of that, uh, so Max Cady is supposed to be this big menacing person, and he's actually only five foot nine. And Nick Nolte is six one, so Nick Nolte lost a lot of weight and made himself look meeker than that of De Niro. Which, which by the way, I feel like I watched half this movie without realizing I was watching Nick Nolte. Yeah. Is it me or did this seem like not a Nick Nolte type of Nick Nolte? No. <laughs> I don't know what that's hundred percent supposed to mean, but I, like there's it makes sense in my he's... head. There's moments that he's very big Nick Nolte and other parts where you're just like, is he trying to do his best Gregory Peck? Like I, I couldn't, couldn't place it, but I mean, he, he's, he's at times unrecognizable as who you would assume, you know, 48 hours <laughs> kind of yes. Nick Nolte, you know? Well, so anyway, we cut to the family uh, and uh, actually, I guess really we cut to Max at first and then we cut in on the family shortly thereafter Max is at a movie theater and he's enjoying another movie that we've been talking about, which is Problem Child. <laughs> <laughs> and holy God, does he find that movie the funniest Hilarious. thing ever. And at first I was like really questioning, like, why is he finding this as funny as he is? And then, of course, I realized that as soon as it cuts over to the family, he's doing it to troll this family. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit of a slow burn because uh, you don't quite get at first that, you know, what the relationship is between him and this family. And the next thing, you know, the family's at like a diner and like their meal is paid for. And I thought it really odd that the woman's like, Oh, like he paid for it. And he like turns around and like, he's apparently supposed to be seeing Max Katie, but Max Katie's like outside across the street, like in, in a convertible. car, <laughs> you know, I was like, all right, that's a little questionable, but um, you know, I, I don't know because it was played a little unclear if Nick Nolte does recognize the character of Mac Katie, Max Katie at first, or if he well and truly has forgotten him until they sort of had this confrontation and he sort of tells him who he is. To to tie it to the first movie, both versions of the uh, Sam character don't remember him until – yeah, refreshes them. Which back. I actually think is the better way to play that. Right. You know what like I mean? It was so like, insignificant. Like, I like yeah, just that, like it's like a, just another notch in his belt for him, and that for you know, like you know, um, De Niro's character that he's been stewing and stewing and stewing on this one guy for for all this time. It's kind of makes it even even better. So like, I was a little like I couldn't quite tell where he was like landing on that. Um. So. Uh, you know, basically, next thing we see is um, Sam is at a squash court. And, oh, my God, I've never played squash in my life. But, like, what a violent sport. <laughs> it looks so fun. You've never played? I used to, we, we had those racquetball courts at, at college. You used to play it all the time there. It's fun. Am I saying the right thing? Is it squash? Is it racquetball? Like, squash, one of them's with a hand, right? Hand, I don't know. Well, that's handball. No, squ yeah. squash is a racket with with a racquetball. And At any rate, he's with this like, you know, like uh, law firm intern, young young law clerk, uh, which we don't really even get her download until a later, little later in the movie. But he's kind of like vanilla, cheating on his wife with her. Like she's definitely like more interested in him. He's kind of like like for all intents, sort of like I'm not really interested in 
having a physical relationship with you, just like I'm having fun with you or playing mm-hmm. squash, you know, and she's kind of questioning him on, um, you know, like, Oh, you haven't told your wife about me. And he's like, no. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, obviously this isn't going to lead to any good, but like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of a weird, I'd almost rather he'd have been cheating Mm-hmm. And just made it a little bit more clear cut that he's just like a dirtbag cheating on his wife than this like sort of like vanilla, like well, testing well, we find, the waters of, of like an affair. <laughs> well, we find out later in the movie that he did have an affair at some point, And that's why they relocated to where they live now. And But it also like, but that's, and again, I'll come to that, I guess, in my notes or not. We could talk about it now is that like it kind of undoes that whole scene where she's like you're cheating on me because like he well and truly isn't <laughs> like is right. the is the thing at the end of the day you know like he's basically playing squash with a coworker right um so i don't know it's it's kind of a i don't know it's kind of another weird plot point also the, the gregory peck version of the, in the original movie is like a white knight there's literally nothing wrong with him he's a very one dimensional character in that sense um and i i think they added this element into this movie to give Nick Nolte's version a little bit more depth and a little bit more, more of a flawed personality, um, which I understand because, you know, the, the, this character comes back later in, in the, in both movies. Yeah. So we get a scene now where it's the first sort of verbal confrontation between them where like, he sort of is like, Oh, you don't remember me and blah, blah, blah. And all this. And, you know, kind of the next thing, like he's at home playing piano. I, I feel like this is one of the first times in this movie for me where I don't understand Sam's thinking or motivations like with this guy. Like X-Con shows up, you know, has paid for your meal. You recognize or at least saw him, even if you didn't recognize him then. And now he's there explaining to you that he's like out and all this like. I don't know. Like, I, I think like almost immediately I'd be like really concerned that this guy like went out of his way to like, come find in, like, yeah, find me and say hello to me and pay for a meal and all this sort of, like already it's problematic already. I'd be getting a hold of the like police, the DA, who, whoever, and being like, there's this guy who's kind of creeping on me. Like, you know, whatever, you know, he, he starts talking pretty early on in this film that he gets a restraining order. He's trying to get a restraining order, and they don't make it clear that for a while that he hasn't still yet managed to get right. it. I don't know what the holdup is. This guy works, you know, like uh, presumably with the DA and everything. Yeah, yeah. It would take him nothing at all to get a, an actual restraining order. So I don't know. There's very weird things like that in this movie that were that were really making me itchy. Yeah, no, um, it's true. Well, literally that that car confrontation is sh- almost shot for shot, word for word exactly as the original interesting like, like it was it was uncanny i was like wow it literally like shot for shot and cool. this, almost the same exact dialogue we um we cut to a scene with his wife and they're talking and blah 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 or whatever but it's at nighttime and it it seems as if there's a lightning storm going on and i was really confused by this at first because i'm like what is with this multicolored lightning and then shortly thereafter once they get to a parade maybe i missed a line Actually, I guess shortly thereafter, we see Max Cady outside sitting on the wall. Uh, I mean, I realize it's fine. It's fireworks. It's not it's not a lightning storm. Did you catch right away that this was? Yes. Fireworks. Because, 
because they start exterior of the husband and wife bedroom and they kind of pan up to their window and you're seeing fireworks. I must have missed. I must have been like looking down or something, taking a note. It was a blink and you miss it kind of moment where you see fireworks as a reflection off of the window, which I must point out, they lean into shots of reflections of Oh, we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. Give me a second. So anyway, (laughs) uh, interesting. And again, this is one of these like odd graphical questionable things is that we sort of have this scene between him and her and she's sort of like, like woman scorned, you know, like he kind of like goes to bed, leaves her kind of like sexually frustrated. So she's kind of like putting on lipstick and she looks out the window and she sees Max Katie sitting on their wall. And one of the other trends they go throughout this whole film is this concept that Max, like Max is like a frigging genius. Like he's like right. always 10 steps ahead. And he knows that like, if he's sitting on their wall, that that's not considered trespassing. So therefore right. he's not like breaking the law, but it's got this really weird shot where it's looking up at him sitting on the wall. And there's like eight bazillion fireworks going off. And I questioned this in my head at the time, and I'm so glad that they addressed it in the making of that. Basically, they blue screen this shot. Yeah, it has to have been blue screened on a wall. And then they put in just like stock footage of fireworks, 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 fireworks. And like even in like the making of like essentially the writer like is like sort of um, at several times in the making of kind of low key sort of like questioning like choices while making it sound like he's backing them up. Like he's like, Oh yeah, they were like put in like a lot of fireworks and like, you know, it's very funny to listen to because you can kind of tell, like it seems like it didn't make a lot of sense because but the, it's another fun- really just bizarre. Like they were like, like, like they were going back and forth with the, they had the visual like um, person and like, He's talking that like Scorsese is like no more, no more, no more, and that like it's just like insane looking, <laughs> like to the point that like they were talking that they took like you know some of this stock footage of fireworks, turned them into black and white, and then like did like color treatments on them to make them colors that fireworks can't even possibly be, just because like it like 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 you know like they have like this one green shade that like fireworks cannot even be this shade of green and everything because they wanted it to be so colorful and intense and every like insane behind him. And it just seemed like, again, like another, like, just like, I, what is the point? Is it supposed to show that Max is intense, that he really likes fireworks? I mean, like, I don't know. It's very there's weird. There's two weird things with this particular sequence of events. Like, you see him sitting on essentially their wall and their edge of their property. But the way he's shot and the way the fireworks are, you almost think he's like, on the neighbor's roof across the street, leaning against their <laughs> chimney, the way he's kind of perched, and the way the fireworks are kind of like right over his shoulders, not way up in the sky. That's the first thing. And the other thought about this that I thought was very strange is when, when we see the conversation between Nick Nolte's character and and what's his wife's name in the movie? What's her real name? Uh, the one from American Horror Story. Ugh, um, Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang, yeah. So when Jessica Lang and, and Nick Nolte are having the conversation in the bathroom, it feels like they were shot separately because he's huge on one side of the frame in the foreground and she's in the background. It's just, they, look, they put well, like a, 
Again, like Scorsese does do close-ups and extreme close-ups or whatever, but they were really playing up the extreme close-ups quite a lot in this film. And it just felt awkward. Like it didn't work. The shot was weird. And And they were uh, doing some more of the negative effects at this point too. Yeah. yeah. It's strange. It's a a weird scene. And then they also had like this like um, really weird um, red dissolve. Yes. Like effect that happened at like one point in the midst of all this. This is actually before he's up on – yeah, the wall. It so happened, they get to, like the scene of them talking or something yeah. like that. Yeah, this is, they they lead into this like red blood color dissolve in the beginning, around this time, and then again toward the end. It's very strange. Um, so we cut to, and this is another one where I got really tired of it, where it basically cuts to him like back at like his like law office. Yeah. Um, and they start giving you a little bit of the backstory that he was. Max's defense lawyer. Um, and again, this is like what I was saying to you before. I, I find this so questionable that he's not the prosecutor that put him away. He's right. not the judge that sentenced him. He's not like a jury member. Well, like, you know, like it's, the whole thing was that he like raped slash, you know, they got it. Like basically. All right. Let's talk for a second about yeah. like the, the thing, because it's not worth even mentioning later. So he defended Max Katie. And he had him do a plea deal that got him down from rape to just battery. Right. What Max Cady is upset about and what uh, basically um, Sam's coworkers get upset with him about is that he mentions that he basically withheld evidence. And this is something that like broke my brain when I heard it, because I'm not sure if this is like a box office 30, 30 years thing or if this is just one of the weakest possible reasonings I've ever heard of, of something like this in a film, but the, the evidence that was withheld that caused Max Cady to be sentenced for longer or whatever, which doesn't make any sense in my head, because if he was sentenced to, to the rape charge, he would have been sentenced for much longer was that the girl that he raped, who I think was supposed to be something like 16 years old Mm -hmm. was promiscuous. Yeah. There was evidence that the girl quote unquote was promiscuous. Mm -hmm. I don't really understand what they're trying to infer here then. So like the girl was hanging out with older men. She opened herself up to the rape and battery. Like, right. I, I like, I don't know how that would have changed Max's situation. There's also Max had also gotten off on two prior rape and battery cases as well. And, and basically, yeah, so Nick Nolte's character held back that this girl was promiscuous, as they say repeatedly in the movie. I don't know if this is a southern thing at the time, a law thing in the south. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Well, yeah, I, I was just about to say, look, I'm no lawyer. I, I can't really speak as to how the law works. But the other thing is, like, he's so mad at him that he withheld this evidence and did this plea deal. But – he as the defendant would have had the right to essentially make them mention these things. Like, right. like, like he wouldn't have just been like sent away without like that. Like he even says that basically he let him go as a lawyer and then started f- filing appeals on his own. And he acted as his own lawyer and all this sort of thing. So why wouldn't he then have brought up this evidence? Why would he have accepted the plea? De- like, it it just makes no sense. Yeah. Like, and I realize that they need this like inciting incident to sort of set this character on his path, but I really wish that essentially he had been the prosecutor 
or something else. Like, you know, to your point in the original film, he's going after him because he's the key witness. Right. That makes so much sense. He's pissed off because without this guy, he would have been off scot-free. Right. In this, it doesn't make any sense. There's so many other people that he could be going after in this scenario that they could have done with this character. This character does not have to be a defense attorney that like did this plea. Deal. Like it just, uh, just it really he's, like he's not boggles even, he, my he, mind. He's literally just was a public defender of this guy. Like he, you know. But here's the thing: what they should have done, which or was, like, was he going to terrorize this guy's family and then move on to the judge and whatever next? He seems to have no interest in bothering anybody. Exactly. But his, Sam's character. His only intention is to go after Sam's character. And as we see at the end of the movie, to put him specifically on trial for what he feels is a sin of his, which was with, again withholding this piece of evidence. Right. That the girl was promiscuous. <laughs> not not that. There was some piece of evidence that showed that it was actually somebody else and actually his character was completely innocent, which would have also made total sense that, like, he was a complete innocent and then he got sent away for 14 years on this thing. And that's why he's, you know, broken and and turned into this crazy guy in prison. Like, it is one of the weirdest and out of left field, weakest reasonings i've ever seen for somebody to be this insane over somebody in a film ever in my life (laughs) no it's 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 bad and what they should have what would have been very smart is if at some point maybe fred thompson's character maybe somebody else said gee recently the judge turned up dead and the prosecutor turned up dead then you could just wash that away like, okay, he's systematically going after everybody, but they don't even pay mention of that at all. It's only Nick Nolte's character that he wants revenge from. So next sort of step in the movie is they have a dog, looks a lot like Benji, and he gets a call at his office from his wife. He takes the call. He shows up home, and the dog has been killed. Um this happens in the original too. Both times he's poised. The dog is poisoned. Uh, and we get this sort of – it continues throughout the film, like this idea that like Max is basically showing up at their house and they're not even aware of it yet. We're not seeing it. They're not aware of it. But there's oddities like the dog, which was inside, you know, because he's like, you don't let the dog out, you know, whatever – the dog was inside, the dog disappears or not, and it just like dies because it's poison. So it's inferring that Max is coming into their house without them even noticing it. We have this later with the piano wire being missing, which then shows up again in the end. Um, in the making of, they were saying that they were going to even like knock this over the head even further with, you know, like uh, Jessica Lange's character is like, a, like somewhat of a graphic designer or logo mm-hmm designer she's struggling the whole movie to create like this perfect logo and so they were going to have a scene where she comes down one morning and the logo is like perfectly sketched on her pad and she thinks it's her daughter that like did it but then the daughter's like no i didn't do that and she realizes that max has been in the house and did this and they cut it out because thankfully because (laughs) i was like listening to this thing and going like oh my god this is the dumbest thing ever that apparently on top of everything else this guy is incredible at He's also a, a capable graphic designer now as well. Mm-hmm. Although I guess he, I don't know, maybe he did his own prison tattoos. Maybe he is a capable designer. Um, but it's just its just too much. It's just too over the top. So I'm glad that they saw that uh, and cut that scene out. Um, but they arrest him. They're doing this like 
completely random strip search on him, which basically is mostly so we can see all the, the tattoos, tattoos that he's got. Otherwise, like I think they're just doing it to like embarrass him or they, something. They, they, they do it in the original too. They make him strip down to his boxers as a way to like embarrass him. They do the exact same thing in the original movie, but like I said, they don't reveal any tattoos. They just basically do it for shame and basically to prove that you're less than us. Like you're not as good as us kind of thing. In the meantime, you know, I have a note that like, I'm like, I'm just still not understanding like that this guy's even a lawyer because he's gotten them to arrest this guy on the basis that they killed his dog, but he has no evidence of that. They have, they have nothing to hold him on that. So like, now things are worse because now he's had this guy who's already been after him to, you know, to some extent or another and has possibly killed his dog, like arrested on, on a way that they're never going to be able to hold him. Um, so now like the cops and everything feel like he's wasted their time, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's, it's just like a little bit odd. Um, again, um, he mentioned earlier in the film that he had filed for this restraining order. It's not clear at this if point it, in the film it, that it hasn't been executed. Right. And yet he keeps seeing the guy. So like, I'm like, why wouldn't he be arrested already for, you right. know, violating this, this, you know, restraining order. But I guess, I guess what they infer later in the film is that he never got it to go through for Unknown for whatever reasons. reason, yeah, for reasons un. But they're un- not really surprised. doing a good job of making it obvious early in the film that he they, he said I filed for the restraining order, but they didn't make it obvious that he didn't then get it. I guess right. So um, I'm trying to remember because I, I might have skipped around a little bit. I, I they see him at this Fourth of July thing, and he kind of confronts him at the parade with yeah. the dog. But uh, kind of we get to this this next scene where now Robert De Niro's in the bar with that young woman that that he was, again, sort of vanilla cheating on the, the girl that was working at his firm. And the reasoning that we get for why she's at this bar with Max Katie, because, again, it's just unclear. Just we just like tune into the bar and they're there chatting. It, you know, again, Max Cady seems to have this like incredible radar for where everybody is at any given moment. Yeah, he just he just knows how to find people. Um, but she's like feeling bummed because she got stood up to play squash or whatever again, which should be obvious because again, he's like laid it very clear that like he's not really going to have like a like a further relationship with her at this time and everything. So she's going to like scorn him. So she's going to chat with this stranger at the bar she goes back to a hotel or whatever with him very brutal scene that we get where you know he um you know attacks her infers that he rapes her but he bites her cheek and rips a piece of her cheek off um which you know they were talking about in the making of that this was taken from like a real life case with a particular serial rapist who did this to all his victims and things like that Okay, interesting. <laughs> so, so um, as I said, this happens in the original movie as well. Not as violent. You don't see the whole thing. You just kind of – you see him kind of bring this random girl. The difference is the girl that he he attacks in the original has no connection to the, the, the lawyer's life. Like he just – she's just some random girl at a bar – that Max Cady's kind of been stalking for a little while and finally gets her to come back. And he, he says that, you know, she's promiscuous in the original. And, and this girl sort of admits that she's sort of like, you know, 
dates the wrong kind of men, etc., etc., and he beats the ever-loving hell out of her. And, you know, she's in the hospital, and she refuses to, you know, testify or, or even file a complaint against this guy because she's so afraid of him, which happens verbatim in the other movie as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, again, like... I think, you know, it's obvious to the point where they're probably just like at a point bashing you over the head with it that every action that Max is taking is to like further dismantle this guy's family and his life. Um, And again, like I don't even know that he's needed to do that because this guy and his family are already super dysfunctional. Yeah. You know, like him and his wife are completely on the outs with this previous affair um, and like his kind of like workaholic nature and you know like the daughter um is sort of punched up as this stereotypical like rebellious teenage girl who's like overly um curious i was even gonna say past curious like like sexually also use the word promiscuous again like like where she's like gonna get back at her parents at any possible time by sort of like making the wrong choice you know Mm -hmm. like you know, flaunting, you know, like a sexuality that she's coming into sort of thing at them, like just for the sake of the fact that she's unhappy with how they act around her sort of thing. So like, it it doesn't really take much, you know, let alone like all this other stuff, but at any rate. So, so, so yeah. So basically, you know, Nick Nolte gets a phone call that uh, there's been a girl that's been raped and beat and she's in the hospital. He doesn't know anything other than, you know, that, they believe it's this guy. He goes to the hospital and finds out that it's this girl that he plays squash with. And she's like ashamed to see him. Doesn't want him to look at her. Cause she's, you know, beaten and she wants to leave town and doesn't want to testify. And be, but he's like, come on, you know, we could get this guy now. Like, we could, we Well, should... and not for nothing too. They also make mention that like a couple of witnesses supposedly saw Max Katie driving away after they heard her screaming. Right. So like they could, essentially like arrest him and button up this case. You right. know what I mean? Like there's already been evidence that the guy has been stalking and bothering this particular guy to do with like his law thing, seemingly killed his dog. Now he's attacked this woman. That's like, again, like got at least a working, if not possible personal relationship to him. There's other witnesses that right. say that they saw him driving away. All they need is her. And again, they come up with this, like, just, like, really, like... Cockamamie? Cockamamie is such a perfect word for this. <laughs> Cockamamie excuse that, like, because she works in the law field, she knows that, like, the law is going to fail, or she feels it will fail, and, and therefore, and like, she's Everyone's going to judge her. Everyone's yeah, gonna... and, and again, look, like, I know there's a ton of victims of sexual assault, rape, etc., that feel that way. So I'm certainly not trying to diminish that, but like they kind of try and put this like law spin on it that she like knows that like, it's not going to work because she understands law. Right, like, get off. Yeah. Yeah. It's just this, it's just this like cockamamie, such a perfect word for it. <laughs> such a perfect word for it. Like I, I just concept. And again, this is the type of thing that destroys this movie. I mean, this is why circling back to what I said in the beginning of the movie that like, 
there's the way that they talk about this movie in the making of, and again, the way that hopefully maybe 53% of the people that voted for this in our poll or whatever are thinking about this movie is that like, they're like, Oh, it's a masterpiece. It's so like deep and thought out. And like all of these things just seem like stuff that wasn't really thought out enough to me in the writing. Mm-hmm. Is it just me? Like, I don't know. It just seems like, again, like I can't take away that this movie is scary that it, it does what it's trying to do, but there's these things like this that just make me itchy. You know, like it's just like I don't know. It's just it just I don't know. Whatever. I, I might just be like like thinking too deeply about. No, it. no, you're not wrong. Is, like like this is one of those movies that's like uh, that certain little things. If everything they were to... in this movie falls into place perfectly. Yeah. It's like it's like puzzle pieces just snapping right together. Like mm-hmm. it. it Everybody is always where they have to be at just the right time for just the right thing to happen. Everything's not going to work out for just the wrong reason. It's like, I don't know. It's just like, uh. <laughs> it just, I don't know. It just, uh. <laughs> it almost starts feeling like some of these films that we've watched previously, like the sleeping with the enemy Oh, yeah. things like, like I was thinking a lot about that movie while I was watching this because it's again that same kind of thing where it's like the guy just won't die and he like knows just where to find them and he's like Jason Voorhees stalking them and it's like I don't know there's a lot of that that was going on that was making me a little furious throughout throughout this but what's what's also very interesting about this movie is like it's 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 shot in a way that it's trying to be overly artsy yeah it's trying to be cinematically beautiful and some parts it's really really nice and other parts it's just it's jarringly like trying too hard and that that kind of well, like, point in case, like it's jumping slightly ahead because i was going to mention that like he talks to like a cop friend of his and the guy is sort of like air quote like telling him not to get a gun and just shoot the guy sort of thing, you know? Um, But then it goes to like this like scene, like it just cuts to a scene where they're like, click, lock, swipe, move. And like, they're just like closing doors and like windows. And like, it's just like, it's like way more intense than it needs to be. (laughs) Like, and then uh, he goes off to see again, who I mentioned before is one of uh, probably my favorite characters in this movie. I I don't remember, unfortunately, the the, the PI, the PI. I don't remember what his name is, but he's played by Joe Don Baker um, fabulously. And he's like, he's the best stereotypical character like this, where it's like, you get into like the second act of the film, like the guy has been trying to maintain, like, I'm a lawyer. I have to do this by the law, by the letter of the law, you know, like, otherwise, who am I? I can't, you know, go after this guy if I'm not doing it correctly and above board. But now he's like, all right, I'm going to go see this PI and see if I can't find this guy who's like working slightly in the gray area of the law. Maybe he can find some way to help, you know, like track this guy and see if we can get a leg up on him. Um, So, but like, you know, it's like they always go to this kind of stereotypical, like, you know, gritty character who's going to like help him. In a way, and as soon as they introduce this character, I'm like, Max Katie's gonna kill this guy at some point yeah. down the road yeah. in this film because that's always what happens to this character, yeah. you know. Uh, anyway, they um, have a scene where they're at home and like they're talking about that they got to be relaxed and they got to just be a normal family, even though they just did this like very intense locking all the doors and all this sort of thing. And then like the phone rings 
and they all like jump out of their skins, and it probably made me have jump out of my skin. In the yeah, I, I, jumped, I, not, I literally not had the this, film, this is, but their reaction made me jump. Yeah, this was one of the only jumps in the whole movie that I had as well. But they do now, this jump scare, and it's the PI calling to say like he's following him. Um, now is this is this the moment? Bef- is this before or after he finds out that one of the piano keys isn't working? It's in here somewhere. I just don't remember, but it's it's somewhere in this section of the film. But that's why I brought I mentioned before that like th- like somebody's been messing with this. The piano wire's missing. Right. Yeah. You know, like again, that's your just, MacGuffin right there. That's the MacGuffin of the movie in in Hitchcock terms. Like, why is this thing missing? Why is this obscure? It's going to come back later to to pay it forward. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't know, isn't the MacGuffin more like? the object that they're chasing down throughout the whole film. No, it's, it's usually like something like, like, like in like Indiana Jones and like the Holy grail. Like he's like the MacGuffin is like the Holy grail. He's like trying to get to it the whole film. Well, it's part of it, but also like uh, in, in Hitchcock in terms like in dial M for murder, the, uh, Grace Kelly's character is getting poisoned and she doesn't know why, but she constantly drinks tea and they, and they cut to a shot of her like ha- having the tea and like a, a tea cup. And, and later on it pays forward that she's being poisoned by the tea. And, and that little moment like that, what they're missing is they haven't re- figured out the weird problem. That's a different is. film term, but I can't remember what it is. <laughs> I don't know. You might be right. I don't know. It's been a long time. <laughs> um, but uh, in like, again, like I, I have a hard time feeling bad for Sam because he's, he's honest to God, an idiot. Yeah. He, he's not he, a good lawyer. Here, he's not a good husband. He's not only from his home phone, from, but from his bedroom phone. Oh, he yeah. calls again, the, the low key cheating woman in the hospital and telling her how he feels bad about the situation and everything. Like, there's no reason why he would do this at all because he could just the next day go and like try and call talk from to his her office, again, whatever, you know, or, or like anywhere. He didn't have to call her from his house. Like he could have called her the next day at his office or gone to see her again. Yeah, there's no but reason. Why- this is where it. I have a thing, and again, this is I wanted to to put a pin when you were saying a couple minutes ago about. The, ref- the reflections. reflections. Yeah. This bothered the hell out of me. Do you know what I'm talking about here? When she's standing in the in the mirror and you see her in the glass. But it's not a mirror. Right. It's a window. It's not even a window. She's in the doorway, but we see her reflection off the window. So here's what's strange. He's on the phone, and you know his wife's going to walk in at any moment. And right. it does this slow pan from him past some of these family pictures and, and tchotchkes on like a dresser. Over to their wood slatted door slash window. Now I have here, and I'm going to see if I can show it to you. You'll see if if you can see what I'm talking about. I actually stood up, paused the movie, and took a freeze frame of this. Can you see the shot that I've got on my phone here with the blasting blue light behind her? Yeah. There's a wooden door with wood slats, and what we see is a reflection of his wife standing across the room in another open doorway on this. I'm really, really confused about 
why I'm, this would be a thing. I'm watching the moment right here on the, on the computer. <laughs> because, like, essentially, either they're projecting with, like, a projector, like, having filmed her previously onto a wooden door, or they've put a piece of glass in front of their wooden door because she's not reflected in the glass of the door. She's reflected in the glass and the wood of the yeah. door, which doesn't make any sense. And on top of that, what's weird about it is they dissolve up from it. Like they fade into it in a way that's a little bit jarring as well. And you're just like, huh. Like there's other reflect. as I'm looking at there's other reflections too. There's like a reflection of like a lamp, like over towards the right in the room. So the only thing I can think of here is that they're like, they put up a piece of glass to get this reflection of her. But I, I don't understand the need for it. Like well, you, you can see it, you can see it in the shot. But like they could have like just like panned over his shoulder, and there we see her in the doorway. You know, like why do this like over the top shot of her reflecting in a spot that shouldn't technically be able to reflect anything? Yeah, it seems like a really odd filmmaking choice. And again, the only thing I can call back to this is that it feels like something Hitchcockian to do. Yeah, but it just it just doesn't make sense. It just it's just another really weird filmmaking choice that I don't really understand. Again, like. It's probably another one of these, like, people, like, weren't questioning this. Like, I yeah. guarantee your average moviegoer is not questioning this. But, like, so look I look at, at that and I'm like, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I just I just sent you a picture of that thing, a screenshot. Go grab your phone. You should have it. Yeah. So you see how the window is got the white lattice and then there's this brown thing in the vertical, like, right, in, right by that plant? Yeah, I mean, that's I'm what, assuming that that's a frame that's holding up the glass. I'll tell you how I know it. It is. It's a frame that's holding up a piece of glass. And I, the reason I know it is if you look on the right side of the wood versus the left side of the wood, like the light levels are brighter on the wood yeah. to the right of it. Like the, the doorway, I should say the doorway to the right of it is lighter because yeah. it's got the reflection happening in it. Now, what I guess I don't understand is if that's actually a piece of of something that would have been in this room. It doesn't seem like it should be to me because the piece of wood that we're inferring is holding up is, this piece of glass. Is it a chair? Smack in front of a piece of a chair. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's a really bizarre choice because I, I imagine that there would have been ways to do this if he wanted to make it look like she, because it, it basically what it's meant to look like is as if she's looking in from outside because, and again, I'll post this on social media if you guys want to see what we're talking about, I'll post this still frame. But it's almost like it's meant to be looking like she's looking in from outside, like he's yeah. seeing her from outside. But they didn't have a good way to make that work. So then they did like this like effect. And they do this like in Disney rides and things like that, where basically you project something on a piece of glass and it gives like a ghostly impression of something being there. This is how like the Haunted Mansion ride in Disney works. Mm -hmm. But like um, – it, it doesn't hold up in this right. scene. It, it's not done well. Uh, and I don't really understand why they did it like this. Um, when they could have just gone for something much simpler, like just panning over and, and, and seeing the wife there and he hears her. I, I don't know. It, it's just, it's just an odd filmmaking choice. Yeah. I digress. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, I, cause, cause that bothered me as well as, Earlier in the movie, when we see Max Cady in the car and he's having a conversation with Nick Nolte's character, 
and you see him a lot through the reflection in Nick Nolte's sun, uh, uh, De Niro's sunglasses. And I guarantee you a couple times where there's an over the shoulder shot, you're like, I see the cameraman in the reflection. I mean, I don't mind the reflections and there's a lot of movies that do shots with reflections really well, but this is just not executed. Well, it's just a Mm -hmm. really weird. And again, it's probably something where they're like, if we pan over to this, the average audience is going to just see that reflection of her, like, and they're going to infer that it's in the glass of the door Mm. and call it a day. But like, as a photographer, it immediately caught my eye. And I was like, what Mm. the heck? To the point where I was like, I needed to stop the movie, rewind and go back. So I'm like, something's not right there. (laughs) Like it doesn't make sense. Um, So again, just in the purpose of doing a, Film-based podcast, I thought I'd bring that up. (laughs) Anyway, the wife accuses him of cheating, and he very truthfully says that he's not having an affair with her, even though his behavior is, you know... Suspect. Suspect and odd. Um, But again, I'm not really sure how to feel about this this character choice, because they're they're talking... It comes out at this point that he had this affair, and, and it's, you know, causing all this... Uh, tension, but in reality, he's having a squash affair. Right. <laughs> You're like whatever that is, you know, like he, it's 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 more like he's got like almost like a work flirt. Yeah, um, and again, I don't know that that excuses him because it, it, it's possibly like that, like entry into something that might become more illicit as time progresses. But i don't know i mean again it's, i guess it's just to like have the point of being able to show that this family's already coming apart at this yeah. seems um but again nick nolte's character I, I feel like he's like a bit of an animal you know like the way that he's you know like fighting with his wife he he basically like essentially they sort of infer that she had like a depressive period where for like three months she stopped working like she works as like this like freelancer graphic designer she like stopped taking jobs and he sort of says it in this way where he's like, you weren't taking jobs, you weren't fixing meals, and you just, like, laid in bed and, like, whatever. Like, I have a – I'm, like, at this point in the movie, I'm having a really hard time feeling sorry for him Yeah, he's, at he's, all. He's not a very sympathetic character. She almost feels like uh, like a uh, – I don't know. If the it, Like a neglected housewife in the sense that, like, he, you know, when he says this statement of like, you know, you weren't even fixing meals, like, okay, maybe she's going through something, dude. Like, you're her husband. Like, try to help her out a little bit. No, he doesn't look at it that way, you know, and that's. Yeah, again, I, I just like he doesn't. They're not an ideal couple. Like, I, I, I outside of like, I don't know if they ever even say like the only reason we're staying together and trying to make it work is for our daughter, Danielle or something. I have no clue if they even say that at a point seems like the perfect couple to have just called it quits already because they really are not still compatible. You know what I mean? Um, And again, this is all even without Robert De Niro being um, uh, in the scene. Mm -hmm. So we cut to the PI who's still tailing Robert De Niro, but in a poor sort of PI way, he got too close. He's been discovered. He has a confrontation with Robert De Niro. Um, I was pretty impressed in this scene with how Robert De Niro sort of handled him because like, this is like that kind of stereotypical, like, all right, I'm going to step in now because you caught me and I'm going to try and be like, get out of 
you gotta dodge, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, otherwise it'll come to problems for you, sort of thing. But like Robert De Niro sort of handles him fine, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like whatever. Um, but uh, you know, they have this scene out, and we're like, all right, I, I'm still like, all right, this PI is gonna get killed at a point. Yeah. Um, it cuts to a scene, and again, what's interesting is that the making of actually did a little bit for describing to me why this scene existed. But I have a, a problem with it is that it, we get a scene now where the wife is down at their mailbox checking their mail and Robert De Niro pulls up and says like, oh, I found your dog's like dog tag. Mm-hmm. And like a complete idiot. She's like, oh, yeah, thanks for returning this to me. Like not at all putting two and two together about who this guy is. Like right. at first well, she, does, that, she does make the connection ultimately, but like. But, but the other part about it is the dog died in the house. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm really unclear about. I don't know. It, it was a really weird kind of scene. And basically what they were saying in the making of is that this was a scene that was added at the 11th hour because um, she pointed out that for the kind of like ending and the scene that they have together in the ending that like, she has no other point in the movie where she's like with this character. Right. She's so they needed to just basically like basically have some kind of scene for the two of them to interact. So I feel like, again, this scene is a little Smart. cobbled together or whatever in that respect, but here's what bugs me. And this bugs me here. And it bugs me again, very shortly with Juliette Lewis's character of Danielle which is that the husband is losing his damn mind about this. He's got a PI on this and all this sort of thing, but he hasn't thought to show his family a picture of this guy and be like, if you see this guy, like... Which is so funny you say that, because in the original, Gregory Peck, the first thing he says when he goes home to his parent, his, his wife and his daughter, who, whose name is Nancy in the movie, funny enough, it's different. it's a different name, but he says... I'm going to get you both a picture of this guy so you know if he comes around. It's the first thing Gregory Peck says immediately. After well, and that. Again, I'm jumping ahead here, um, but it's just for the purpose of what we're discussing. When he, in a short amount of time, calls Juliet Lewis and pretends to be a teacher and tells her to come into a drama class, which is a whole other thing I don't really understand. When she gets there, it takes her several minutes to realize it's him. So, again, like, if you want to protect your child and protect your wife and you know that this guy is stalking your family, he's killed your dog, he's put your quasi-girlfriend in the hospital, like, aren't you going to arm them with, like, information? Like, this is what this guy looks like. This is what this guy did. Like, you know, like, he doesn't – like, they kind of, like, are trying to keep the daughter, like, blissfully unaware of right. why – like, they sort of just say to her, like, oh, it's this guy that's, like, creeping around, whatever. Like, like show her a picture for Christ's sake. And yeah. here's the other part that makes me itchy is that she comes out during this scene and says, like, mom, blah, 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 blah. And sees and, him. And, like, basically, like, they don't necessarily show a shot of her looking at him, but they show a shot of De Niro – like staring very lustily like at her and she's only like 10 feet away and the woman's like go back in the house like sort of like and then she sees him and like it takes her several minutes like i don't know it's very confusing for me that that like nobody would have put this together to i don't know it very very weird weird choices which i have to boil down to not even stupid characters so much as stupid writing. writing 
it, it, it just it just doesn't make any sense. Okay, so like I said, you know, it, basically one of the next things that we then see is that he we have this scene where he's doing this like upside down chin ups again, whatever pull ups. Or I don't know what you want to call it, and he calls Danny. Um, and has a full-on conversation with her. And I, I kind of was like, I guess I either half tuned out of this scene or something because I didn't really understand the full context of it, that he sort of was saying, like, at first I thought she was saying that it was her English teacher, but then it was saying that he was like a drama teacher. Drama teacher, yeah. Um, but I don't understand why that drama teacher would be calling the student and, like, why she would... Why, she's so, why she's so naive that oh this is the new drama teacher and he's calling all the students it, it the, the other problem about this is and again this guy works for like the da right we know we all know that this guy is harassing them in some context why is their phone not tapped by this point well and again all this time has gone by and he still doesn't have this restraining order somehow right. you know like the, which would be, like i feel like fixing some of these things but she goes into the class the next day she's meant to meet him at the theater which is an interesting thing why a drama yes. class that she supposedly is part of which she mentions normally meets in one room would not meet in the theater would in fact meet in some other random classroom but Meet you her think in the theater. You go through a basement to get to, by the yeah, way. Yeah, creepy basement. Only one there is this guy. Nobody else has showed up. He kind of like pulls the wool over her eyes by being like, oh, are you like Jessica Stern or something else? You know, like. You want to smoke grass, kid? Yeah, yeah. And then like, you know, basically, again, they're trying with this character to sort of be like, she's naive, but she's also not naive. And she kind of figures out it's him. And so because her parents, like, aren't happy with this guy, she's going to, like, sort of, like, stretch her, like, sexual muscles by sort of, like, leaning into, like, oh, I'm kind of, like, this guy's a bad guy. I'm going to kind of be attracted to him. And, like, here we are, and I'm, I'm finally realizing, possibly, <laughs> past this long, boring conversation with the two of them that I'm, like, it's all just drivel. Here's why you guys wanted to watch this movie. <laughs> it's so creepy. Oh, it made me so uncomfortable. Oh. I mean, like, yeah, Creep Factor 11. Interesting thing to know about this scene. Um, Robert De Niro went to Scorsese ahead of it and said, like, look, I want to do this thing with my thumb. I want to improv this. They didn't tell Juliette Lewis about it, which, again, I want to point out, she's 17 in real life when they're doing this filming, um, playing 15. And uh, he says to him, okay, so they set up a two-camera shot so that way they can kind of catch both of them from opposite angles to get both of their reactions as they proceed with it. And he keeps getting closer to her and closer to her. He says, can I put my arm around you? And Juliette Lewis describes this point in time that she had kind of like in like the week or so ahead of this sort of like formed a crush on Robert De Niro. Mm. And then like, he like puts his hand on her face and like sticks his, his thumb in her mouth. And like the look you see on her face is her well and true reaction to that in real life. She did not know it was coming. This is the first take. They did three more, two more takes, but they went with the first take in the film. Um, and it comes off with all the cringe, <laughs> you yeah. know, and I'm like, 
I'm like, so this is what you guys went for over the, uh, the you know, the like wholesome Adams family. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, all right, you guys are just, this is, this is it. It's either you guys wanted to like torture me with this like cringy, creepy scene. I was like, this has to be what was in people's head. They knew what was coming. I did not know what was coming. And this I, was had, <laughs> I, I had forgotten this, this happened. I remembered it when I, when I saw it and I was like, oh my God. Yeah, so I mean, I have to say, like, I've seen a lot of either overtly sort of sexual things in different movies over time, overt sort of violent things over time. I have to say this one really caught me off guard, and it's only because I know that the character and the actress was supposed to be and is so young that it it, it really felt like a, a well and true, like, perversion I, sort of I, odd thing, I literally you know? I'm, I'm watching it right now because you can see on on Juliet Lewis's face and the way she moves her hand to his finger so quickly and then she sort of like just goes with it in the scene but you can te- see that it, she was not prepared for that moment to happen yeah I mean like living in like the post Weinstein sort of days too and I, I gotta say like again like watching this making of she talks about that like early on into her casting like they 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 saw her first and then they weren't really calling her back and saying you've got it they were like oh we really really like you but but we're still looking at other people and then she finally basically describes that robert de niro calls her and asks her to come to a hotel room and have a sit down with him and i'm like oh god here we go and this is her describing this in this making of thing from presumably like still early in the nineties. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, here we go. We're like, we're in the Weinstein thing, thick of it here and everything now. And, uh, and then the way you see that there's this interaction in the film, like through the 2020 slash 2021 now prism, this feels even worse. I feel yeah. like in my head. And again, like they were describing in this making of that, like people's reactions when they were seeing it, either amongst the filmmakers or in the, initial screenings in theaters that people were like, like backing away and like, like feeling like really uncomfortable and like screaming out loud in the theater and things like that. Like it for sure, as far as if you've seen this movie goes probably down in iconic sort of like all time, like cringe, creepy, like, Oh my God moments. Yeah. In a film. Especially because you're like, it's Robert De Niro for God's sake. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just like, I, you know, something is going to go amiss in that scene. I did not know where it was going to go. If he was going to physically attack her, if he was going to sexually attack her, if he was just going to like be really creepy and put something into her head that really got in, you know, mentally psyche if he was going to kidnap her um and for what could have happened to her this is probably one of the more minimal things and yet it had a potency that like just has stuck with me now since seeing it i was just like it was really quite something and you don't you didn't you left out the part that after he does this he follows this up with like kissing her like like deeply kissing in, her in a way it almost that almost didn't even get to me as much as that like there was something so like like the breaking of innocence yeah. like in that other like it's just it's it's very it's really weird it's it's weird to 
to say, but it, it kind of like it, it just really caught me off guard. And obviously it caught, you know, Juliette Lewis off guard. So, yeah. um, you know, really kind of interesting and intense scene um, from the film. Now, you want to know something funny? Do you know who else was up for this role? <laughs> In the Steven Spielberg version of it? Drew Barrymore. Well, do you, but I, actually, the Max Cady is, is what I was getting at. Well, yeah, I'll get into that too. But Juliet Lewis's character, it was either going to be her. I did catch that, yeah. Reese Witherspoon or Drew Barrymore. And in the Scorsese version of this movie, the Robert De Niro role, they wanted Bill Murray. Well, this was the Steven Spielberg get. So when Steven Spielberg was still attached to it, he was attached to it with Bill Murray as the Max Cady character, which I can't even remotely imagine. <laughs> yeah. and, and also, initially, Scorsese wanted Harrison Ford. Yes, but for the um, Sam character. For somebody, yeah, I think so, yeah. For, for the something. Sam character, they yeah. wanted they wanted Harrison Ford, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, it, I, I, honestly, I think it ended up better with the two actors that they did have. Yeah. And I'm a huge Harrison Ford fan, but I actually think that, that Nolte is the better yeah. character for this, you know, or the better player for this particular character than than Harrison Ford is. But um, yes, yeah, I, I did catch that amongst the other stuff. Um, so uh, basically, uh, again, we get another scene where Sam and, and Katie sort of like confront each other and have a conversation. Uh, and we find out later that Katie um, basically was wearing a wire, which I don't know how he knew to do that, but was wearing a wire um, during this. Or you know, I guess I'm getting things slightly out of. Well, no, he he has a tape recorder on him at a diner and records Nick's note. But like, but I guess I'm I'm mixing because like he he talk he goes and talks to Danny then and then again like what completely finally cements this character as being a total shit brick in my mind is that he basically assaults his own daughter yeah over it like he's trying to get her to explain like did he touch you did he touch you and he like grabs her face in this very violent violent way um and is like screaming at her and like you know like he's like losing his mind and like I'm just like, you piece of human garbage. <laughs> like, you're almost as bad as the bad guy, you know? Like, I don't know. It's just like, it, it's really weird. But I'm trying to remember which of those two things. No, I guess it's I guess it's that order. So he confronts him at first again. It's like another time he, he has a conversation and nothing comes out of it. And then he confronts the daughter. And that is finally what pushes him over the edge to go with the P.I., hiring the three guys to like essentially mm-hmm. um, beat him up. So we're at an hour 14 into the movie out of a two hour, seven minute some odd movie. And he has these guys come and beats him with the pipes and the chain. And Sam is there watching and watching what Why? on earth would he Why? be doing there? Like, first of all, if this PI is this guy arranging it, he's going to be like, you go home, you go with your wife and your child, don't you worry, I'm going to handle this. Yeah. If anything, he would be there, maybe, but, to facilitate but it's also, it. It's also like, why wouldn't the PI be like, hey, listen, you need an alibi for, exactly. where, for where you are. Like, why would you be there watching it? You wouldn't be there. And then the there. other dumb part is like the, like the hoods or whatever you want to call them are like, hey, Max, like – 
Like, don't do that. Just, like, attack him. Make it look like you're, like, mugging him or, like, you know, just randomly assaulting the guy or whatever. Yeah. Again, it's so questionable, the choices in this film with stuff like that. He gets utterly beat down. He's all lacerated and everything. And then he magically manages to fight back. He, like, steals the pipe from a guy, whacks them, and he chases the three guys off. Well, in in the original, the same thing happens – only with the chain, no pipes. They they Which, attack by the him. Wait, what is that chain? It's almost like at first I thought it was like a regular link chain, but it like slices. Yeah, it, it, it's it's almost like some sort of serrated weird thing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So basically, this same sort of scene happens in the original movie under a boardwalk, like in, on like the Jersey Shore kind of boardwalks that kind of overhang the the sand, yeah. you know, and. They, they start to attack Katie, and then he whoops them and kills all three of them as well. And then he picks up a payphone and calls their house and tells them. Calls – oh, in the original movie. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. So, I mean I guess they're just trying to go for that same sort of thing, like letting him know that he knew it was him. But like basically he just like hides behind a dumpster. Yeah. And like he's like talking to him behind the dumpster but doesn't actually like come around the side of the dumpster to like confront him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just it just really confused me why he would have at all been there. It just doesn't yeah. make any sense whatsoever. Um, so Katie, he goes to hire a lawyer, but it turns out that Katie has already hired the lawyer that the Sam lawyer. has been a lawyer, which turns out to be Gregory, Gregory Peck, Peck. Yeah. as the freaking Kentucky Fried Chicken guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the same thing. I was like, really? That's the thing. Well, like, it the- is. So it's funny. So like, again, like they approached Gregory Peck about like, could, would you, would you want to do a cameo in this? And he's like, Oh, I don't know. I was already in that movie. I don't know. And then they're like, Oh, well he's this kind of like Southern, like over the top, like lawyer sort of guy. And he's like, all right, I'm in. So yeah. like, it's like, he's in it because he's playing the Kentucky fried chicken, Colonel Sanders, you know, <laughs> like that's the whole reason he's there. Like, otherwise he wasn't going to do it. The, um, the Kentucky fried lawyer. <laughs> and so in another, just mind boggling thing, he presents this, you know, audio that he managed to record of him threatening him. And in a flip gets a restraining order put on, Nick yeah yeah immediately. Immediately. immediately and in fairness he is all beat to hell and he has this audio saying like i'm gonna get you and all this sort of thing but again it just i think that you know another one of these things is that they're trying to show in a way that like the system doesn't work and that this guy who believes in the letter of the law is gonna like go out of out of that realm of stuff but like it doesn't work in a way that like it doesn't actually feel like is real. You know what I mean? Like What's this funny like is, you know, well-known like sort of like public defender sort of guy like can't get a restraining order against a guy that's like stalking his family and killing his dog, and then like all of a sudden all this other yeah I don't know it just it, it just feels a little forced. <laughs> yeah. Um, he goes to the PI, asks him for a gun, but the PI talks him off a ledge saying he'd get like 15 years to life if he killed him. So they instead concoct this plan to try and trick Katie into coming into his house. So he, they sort of are like, Oh, make it like you got to go on a trip and then like, you know, like get a ticket and make it like you're as if you're on the plane. And therefore like Katie's going to go and look it up and like, he'll come to your house. Cause he won't be able to pass up that choice. We'll be at the house and we're going to set up like, 
wires on the windows so that way if anything moves i'll know that he's in the house so you know like there's like a storm because of course there is yeah, and the pi is like he sees like this wire that's attached to like a teddy bear moving like why is it attached to a teddy bear i don't know but like he realizes like the window is not fully shut so he goes to like shut it and then like he goes to like the other room and sits down and like the nanny that's been with the family the whole time comes in but oh no, it's not the nanny. It's it's Bob De Niro dressed up as the nanny that he apparently it's, has already murdered. It's Garak's, essentially a callback to to Psycho. Garak's the PI with the piano wire from earlier in the movie that apparently he's just been hanging on to this whole time for this explicit purpose. The nanny, they find her dead already in the other room. She's still dressed in her outfit, so that means that he went and got like a nanny outfit. And like wig, I guess, from mm-hmm. somewhere else in the house or something. I don't know why he needed to do that. <laughs> you know, I guess outside of like you're saying, it, it pays an homage to to Psycho. I don't really understand the reasoning. Like he could have snuck up on him just as well. I don't really understand why they did this elaborate thing to like make sure he couldn't come in the windows if apparently he had some other way of getting in the house. So it, you're gonna find that out in a minute. But all right, so fill me in because I missed it. I, I okay. don't understand what happened. Okay, so first of all, I was surprised when it was the piano wire that killed the PI. I thought they were going to call it back to when they poisoned the dog. That this guy, you see him all the time drinking bourbon mixed with uh, Pepto Bismol, which again is another pull from. Um, it was either another show or a cop. Or something like the writer said that he saw this somewhere and thought it was funny, so he wrote it into the script. It's kind of like something out of an in in the heat of the night sort of thing. Well, it's like he still likes his alcohol, but he's got like ulcers, so there, therefore, he does like this mix of like his bourbon with the with the pepto. And I thought he was going to be poisoned by that, but then you see him get murdered by the piano wire in this psycho esque sort of like man in in woman's clothing in a wig. Uh, and, and a robe kind of thing, and you don't know that the woman is dead yet. I thought maybe. And by the way, not only dead, but like five feet away from where dead. this guy is is dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. in, a kitchen, in, in a very small kitchen. Like what, what's weird about this is, like I thought, and this is where I got really, you know, modern day horror versus maybe then i thought he scalped the girl and took her hair off of her head you one would think and that's like the initial impression is like he oh he must have killed the nanny and he's taken her clothing and like ripped her hair off and he's going like uh hannibal lecter here but then like it cuts to her and she's just like dead on the floor she's blood covered but she's just like dead on the floor elsewhere so like it means he had to go and get an extra outfit and this wig just to perpetrate this ruse that it's the nanny walking into the room so, Even the guys that got his back to him. But but how did he get in? How did he get in? I missed that. So here's the thing that we figure out at this moment is he's been living in the house the whole time. Where? They don't know. He's been hiding inside their house. That's how he got to the dog. That's how he got to the piano wire. Nick Nolte figures out this guy's been in the house the whole time. That's why he knew that even though they thought that they would pull this ruse that he left, that he was there and knew that Nick Nolte was there the whole time. So he says that he's been in our house the whole time. Yeah. He's been in the house. 
Like, uh, that doesn't really make any sense either, Michael. I know. It doesn't. Uh, it, it's like you, you, you never check the attic or anything. Like, yeah, I'm at that moment right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast forward it and, and see. Because this is basically where we are. Why did you guys vote for this movie? It doesn't make any sense. Ah. Yeah. Well, while Michael's looking that up, I'm going to talk about Fun.com because I'm not having Fun.com right now. <laughs> Fun.com is a great place to go and get all sorts of fun accessories, toys, collectibles, clothing. We're doing a promo with Fun.com right now where you can get 20% off your entire order. If you head on over to their website and put in the coupon code TRNHOLIDAYS2021, you can get a awesome 20% off your entire order now through January 7th. Michael, do you have the film clip for us? Yeah, basically... The moment Nick Nolte realizes that this guy... This moment in the podcast brought to you by Fun.com. Here it is. He finds the piano wire. He slips in the guy's blood. And he's like rolling around in his blood. And then basically right then and there, he says the moment where he's he's in the house. It's when he finds a piano wire. Well, anyway, he grabs the gun and just starts, like, freaking randomly firing it off as if he's going to hit the guy who's already, like, ran out of the house and left. Um, were you surprised that Max would leave the house at this point? Like, again, like, just, like, check your brain to the door for a second, right? Like, like just forget your suspension of disbelief. Everything's coming to a point right now. It's at a fever pitch. There's a storm raging outside. Max has got this um, piano wire. He could steal the PI's gun, the snub nose 38 that they make this whole to do about. Mm-hmm. He's got the family all there in the house with them, but he's going to run away, let the family leave, get in their car, drive to Cape Fear because reasons. Because <laughs> of, of all the lakes you could possibly go to, let's go to the one called Fear. Yeah. Um, and I know Juliet Lewis says something about that in that opening narration, but I couldn't have been bothered to remember what it was. Yeah. Um, they stop, like, at a gas station to make a call or something, and it, we see that Katie is, in fact, hanging off Underneath the bottom their of their SUV. Yeah. So and, and we, we find out that now they're fugitives because they left the scene of a crime. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's the real reason they make the calls. He's basically trying to explain to the cop, like, oh yeah, like Katie came in and like killed this private detective and and nanny in our house. Oh, but we didn't do it. It was definitely Katie. But we're gone now. We left. We didn't stick around. We left. We're not telling you where we are. <laughs> like, like everything is off the rails at this point. And yeah. Katie, instead of staying in the house. And like hunting them down in the house or confronting them there, instead it clings on the bottom of their car for what is presumably a multi-mile it, trip. It feels like fifty miles. It's <laughs> like, got to be something. And and um, he, he's suspended there by. Let me, let me put this into real context for you because like, I saw this and I went, "What on earth were they thinking?" And in the making of documentary. They explicitly address this scene where the writer basically says 
you know, I watched that movie Alien, and they have those facehugger creatures, and that seemed really cool and creepy to me, that this, like, killer thing would, like, hang on to somebody's face like that. So I thought, like, what's a way that I could show that Max Cady is like that? So I thought, oh, maybe he could hang on to their underside of their car. And then the movie was approaching, and it was getting closer and closer, and nobody was questioning me on it. And then the next thing is they decided to go film that scene. But Bob De Niro, because he's a method actor, decided that it wouldn't make sense to do that unless somebody could actually do it. So they raised the suspension of their Jeep Cherokee and had one of the stunt guys hang on to the bottom of it. And they drove some circles to see if he could do it. And he managed to hang on on the circles. So they decided, yep, that's something that somebody could definitely do. So they proceeded (laughs) with that for the movie. And then it goes to the producer of the film, and she's saying – that they were showing it in screenings and nobody complained about it. So they decided to keep it in the film. (laughs) Now imagine that in a making of that, they decided that they had to like spend like a good, like five, 10 minutes justifying all that. Mm -hmm. That means that they know it's really sketchy and questionable. Right. Yet they put it in the film. The fact that in the making of documentary, they dedicated time at least five minutes of this documentary to explaining why this guy was on the bottom of the car from a story point of view, from a stunt point of view and from an audience reaction point of view. When and they could have been talking about so many other parts of this movie. What's also they weird knew is it was sketchy. <laughs> what's also weird is like for him to get unhooked from the car, like, he just well, it's un- like Robert De Niro in the thing is describing like, oh, I wasn't really like hanging on like the way that we have it in the film is like he attached himself to the bottom of the car. But they don't really show that in the they, film. They do. You when watch he, the making of Doc. Oh, do they? I mean, no, I miss that. You, you, you see it when they get to the boat. He un like he's he sort of like lets go with his feet and hands and he's just sort of hanging there and he undoes a belt loop and comes loose. But they basically, like they said, like, oh, we didn't want to do the thing where, like, he's in a car, like, 100 yards behind them following them. Mm-hmm. So they had to find some other way for him to, like, be stalking them there. So I guess right. I get that. But the hanging under the car thing, when you could look at this whole movie as just climaxing at the house, it's just so weird. Right. I don't know from the original. So anyway, we're, we're, we end up in Cape Fear. They go out on a houseboat called Moana. It's called Moana. And so they do all this and they're on this boat and they're in this like raging torrent night on this boat. They're anchored in this river. Because so, there's always rain, you know. There's always a storm. So, like, it's it's now literally matching the conditions they already had: rainy, stormy night in a home. Except this one now they're in a in a houseboat. Mm-hmm. So, my question for you at this juncture is: this also likewise to the original? So, in the like, original, where does the Cape Fear enter in the original? Is same, it, same. So, go to this place. They go to this boat and they take this boat out. They actually, they actually. The, in the original, though, you actually see the boat once earlier in the beginning of the movie. And, and it's by the a- way, like, I don't know. I'm just going to interrupt really quickly. I think sure. that they said that they live in Georgia in the movie. Does that ring a bell to you? I think it's like because the boat had North Carolina tags on it. Well, this is the reason I was going to say I actually just did a Google search really quickly to see is Cape Fear a real place. And it's it's a place in North Carolina. 
um, centered around the city of Wilmington. So, but, but my question is like where they live, I think that was Georgia. So that, that means mean that they drove from Georgia to North to Carolina. Carolina with Max Katie hanging on the bottom of the car. And nobody noticed for a hundred plus miles. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, apparently that seems the case. But what's funny is in the original movie, we see the boat once earlier because they're sort of like as a family cleaning it. And um, essentially, you know, with, at the parade scene when Nick Nolte confronts Max Katie at the parade. Yeah. The same thing happens at the boat in the original. And Gregory Peck like pushes and shoves the guy. And it's like, hey, see, I didn't lay a hand on him. I didn't touch him. And this guy just came out of nowhere and, and attacked me as he's staring at his daughter creepily. And that's how we know that they have a boat initially. In this version, they it seems like they rented this boat. Like this was a rental. Yeah, I don't. It's not clear if this is a houseboat they owned or if it was a rental. It looked to me also like it was something they were renting. Oh, which oh, was making on. me so laugh because I was like, "Oh, this is like, oh, this is like oh. Harry Potter's family. Like, so right, we're getting away from the magic. We're gonna go like live in like this little shack like out in the." Middle of nowhere. So I'm, I'm at the, I'm at the part of the movie right now where they're he's calling the the uh the judge about you know they that they fled their license plate is north carolina plates okay so maybe they are in the carolinas i thought for some reason they said that they were maybe they moved from georgia or something i thought they had said that they were in that i don't know so So conceivably it's their well i mean again this is a houseboat so conceivably it's their houseboat you know because it's got like stuff on it like like you know that might be presumably theirs. I don't know. Maybe it's just the guy that they were getting it from was like the caretaker. And they just decided yeah. this was like, this was the way that we would get away or something. And, uh, but again, I don't know what the motivation is. Like, like these people died. We got to escape. Like, are, are they right. just hoping the cops will get Max Katie? I don't, I'm not really, really sure, but yeah, what are they, what they, are they fleeing from all of this, all of this, just so Max Ch- Katie can choke him out on a boat <laughs> <laughs> and then not clear tie him up to the outside of the boat and then he goes in to like confront the wife and the daughter and like this scene got really 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 confusing for me like he it's... he is asking the daughter if she read the sexist book that he left her she she throws hot water on him oh, they're, 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 oh there's like a whole scene like where like He's just like doing random things on the boat. So like he takes like the wife and he like takes her in the back as if he's going to like assault her. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of does it. And then he comes back out and he like, he likes, you know, he had stuffed the daughter in like the, the hold and the husband's outside. And then he gets him and brings him back in. Like, it's just like, it's really all over the place and meandering. It seems like he's finally at like his like final, like, all right, here's what I've been leading this whole movie to do with these people. But he almost now like is getting like cold feet or doesn't know what to do with himself. So he's like going from one thing. Like, he's like not committing to any one thing. And I don't really understand why it keeps shifting. Like if he's going to assault his wife, like assault his wife, like he doesn't do it, though. He just kind of like starts to and then walks back. And I don't know. It's very, very, very confusing. Yeah. And, and he gets all preachy. So here's the thing. That's, well, like, that's that fun. seems fine, like essentially like where like, like basically this scene like served to do a few things like he sticks the daughter down in the hold which basically sets her up to try and find like i think she finds a knife or something and then like the lighter fluid fluid, yeah um 
so it's like it's literally just to like get her to that point to find that thing and then like he had like choked out the husband outside and then like he brings him back inside and like handcuffs him and he keeps like shifting where he's handcuffed and then he swaps who's it's just really really random like where like there doesn't seem like he has a clear idea of what it is he wants to do and then they finally which get to this is, very which is intense out of character because literally every single step of the way he's had a clear objective and how he wants to do things. Right. Well, so he finally gets to the point where you're like, all right, well, like, here's why he has them here, where he basically wants to hold this like court session where the wife and the daughter are supposed to be the jury. Like God is supposed to basically be the judge. Mm. And he's he's put Sam on trial for right. not representing him the right way. Right. But like, this is like also like after he's like got hot scalding water thrown in his face, set a flare burning in his hand to like get the melted wax on it. The daughters lit him on fire with another optical effect. Yeah. Basically they had had several different stuntmen do this scene getting lit on fire, but they decided none of them were realistic enough. So they basically did like an optical effect where they tried to have the stuntmen like mimicking what Robert De Niro was doing. And then they just kept putting like fake flame renders, like, like mm. from like other, you know, films flame over it to try and match. And you can see it's not really there because like right. when the flames start going up, Robert De Niro, like there's no light on his face or anybody in the room. It's just like him going like, ah, <laughs> yeah. like these fire effects on him. Um, and then, like, he comes back, like, looking like the dude from Mask, you know, yeah. like, his face, like, all, like, burned and puffy and insane. And, like, he's not, like, dead or in shock. Like, like does this guy have no nerves? Like, yeah, or he ble- seems well, to feel no pain. <laughs> he, he makes some sort of half-handed comment of, like, oh, my, my, my grandfather taught me how to, you know, deal with pain or something like that. And, like, he doesn't feel pain or I don't know. It's so – it's – a little convoluted the wife like basically like offers herself yeah to him like in exchange for not you know sexually assaulting their daughter and like i guess to like leave the because the husband's like chained to the floor at this point he keeps like like stomping on him on the floor well he's he's not chained he's tied like his hands are tied or something isn't it though no no the handcuffs come out afterwards because he then handcuffs katie to the actual railing yeah but i felt like they were like i mean you could check it in your thing i felt like he kept like cuffing and uncuffing and cuffing and uncuffing him several times throughout this Mm. um he goes to light one of those enormous freaking cigars that he's been smoking all movie and juliette lewis sprays him with that starter fluid lights him on fire and then I'm like, Jesus, he looks like Jason Voorhees, like coming, jumping out of the water, yeah. <laughs> super duper burned. I was expecting it to be slow motion rising out of the water, like, like platoon, like a, a apocalypse now kind of thing. <laughs> like, he does this court case thing. And then they essentially end up with like this, like I start losing track because I'm trying to write down all these notes, but this like big fight sequence while this boat is on the most insane river ever imagined <laughs> like, and, and the boat gets completely crushed into a gazillion tiny pieces but yet so there's probably still wasn't like a good uh, night to be out on that boat anyway <laughs> like yeah. they were probably gonna die on that boat that night well you missed, the part, you, you, missed the part, though, you missed the part though katie cuts the anchor loose so the boat can't 
they can't anchor it to anything. So it's I know, but like, it. look at how insane that water was anyway. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I, I guess, yeah, maybe it's worse down the river. I don't know. But like just this big sequence is happening. The boat's starting to get smashed to pieces. The wife and the daughter just leap off. Like, good luck to you. Like, yeah. I don't know how they don't drown it. <laughs> and then he locks Katie to the boat, as you mentioned, with the handcuffs. And they're still kind of like fighting with each other. And Sam... They kind of end up like at the shoreline with like a chunk of the boat and Sam tries to like smash him with a rock. He somehow fails to do that. And then he floats off into the water like singing. I don't know if I saw did the, the thing go under the water. Does he drown? Yeah, it's, it, it slowly lowered itself underwater because you see at one point like his foot is standing on the platform and the platform sort of lowers and you see like that the, he sort of floats up a little bit and then he gets pulled under. But he's like he's not freaking out. He's not screaming or panicking that he's going to drown. He's just deadlock staring at Nick Nolte in this kind of creepy, terrifying sort of way. And then we cut to the uh, the daughter and the mother on the shore. I'm like, how did they get th- they swim through that current and get to shore? Like, it yeah, was- and he ends up on the shore with them, and then we end up with this narration over them on the shore where Juliette Lewis is saying some stuff, and basically one of the things she says is that they never speak about it again. Yeah, how they're fugitives, right? They're potentially wanted for the murder of their nanny and this PI. Max Katie is possibly washed out. If for all intents and purposes could be construed that they got him to this boat, chained him to it and then sunk the boat. Right. Like they, they, like they're going to jail. Like there's no evidence whatsoever that they didn't all commit the crime of murdering all these people. And they're like, Oh, we never spoke about it again because none of us could really face it. And also what a crap ending. (laughs) He, he hired those guys to assault him. They all either got killed or ended up in the hospital. Like there's a lot of different things that happened. And we've done this before with some of our movies. So like, let's pretend now that there's another half hour after the end of this movie. Oh God. What happens next? Uh, like Sam's going to jail. Yeah. Right. I, like, there's I, no way that that guy's not like getting trumped up on all the murder charges for all all this stuff, right? <laughs> I'd say he goes to jail. She she divorces him. She leaves with the daughter and goes somewhere. And then maybe fast forward another 14 years, he gets out of prison and wants to go see his family. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so that's Cape Fear. Again, here's the thing, right? And here's where I struggle with this movie. I really did enjoy watching it. The reason I enjoyed watching it was absolutely the performances and the suspense. And I mentioned the music. The reason I did not enjoy watching this movie is it just made no goddamn sense. (laughs) I'm sorry to say it, but it just makes no sense. Sense, and I'm really disappointed in Martin Scorsese for for this being his film with with just this like just completely nonsensical script. Because when I compare this to so many of his other films that I really and truly love, and again, I'm not going to say that all of them are like I don't know. Actually, quite a lot of them are masterpieces of writing, and that's what really makes me itchy about this. At the end of the day, it's just so littered with plot holes and just like really loose, thin um, reasoning for things. Um, 
again, I don't know. It's it just, it's really perplexing to me that, that this is what it ended up being. And again, like the funny part is like, I went and read like a, like a Siskel and Ebert um, review of it and they reviewed it um, fairly well in the way that I am as, as, as the performances go. But they also said that like, as far as Scorsese film goes, that this was like not, not meeting up to like his, you know, sort of standards. And yet, if you start looking around elsewhere around the internet, because I was trying to find some other facts and information, a bunch of them call this movie a masterpiece. And like, I, I can't in good conscience call this movie a masterpiece. Is it shocking? Is it memorable? Are the performances awesome? Hell yeah. Right. I, I cannot in good conscience call this a masterpiece because I find the writing to be as flimsy as I've found it in movies right. like Sleeping with the Enemy and what about Bob and things like that, that just like did not at the end of the day sell like a good story for me. So the ending of the original, uh, he basically corners them in the river, whatever. And not as much happens on the actual houseboat other than uh, Katie uses that as a, as a decoy so they can go after the daughter and kill the daughter who's somewhere else, like in a cabin. And, Gregory Peck gets to him. They fight. They have the, the rock moment where he hits him in the head with the rock, whatever. At one point they're fighting in the, in the brush here and uh, Gregory Peck grabs a gun and he's going to shoot him. And Katie tells him, go ahead, shoot me. I got, I got nothing left to live for. Kill me. You're never going to get rid of me unless you kill me. And then Gregory Peck has this monologue basically where he's like, no, I'm not going to kill you. You're going to go to jail, you know, blah, 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 blah. And basically he gets arrested and goes to jail, essentially. And Katie, then, and does. It, Katie does. For what? Like, For assaulting his family. Assault or murder and, or whatever? You know. So like kid, he'll be back in a few years again. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> kid, kidnapping, you know. So let me ask you this then. Um, and I want to get like your just honest like feeling on like where this movie lands for you in general. But my second question to that then is so so let me know first of all what your overall feeling of this is but then second of that would you recommend this movie the 91 movie or would you recommend the original movie to somebody who hasn't if, if they can only watch one this which one. one would you tell them to watch this one though this movie is longer it's not as slow like the the other one is an hour and 45 minutes and it felt like four hours long this was two hours long and it felt like three hours and 48 minutes long. <laughs> um, I, I think the acting is better in this one as opposed to the original one. Um, I think if you want to see a Hitchcock style movie, this is more Hitchcockian than the original. I mean, I could watch a Hitchcock movie if I wanted yeah. to watch a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> um, I, I, I think for... Uh, De Niro's performance and um, uh, Nick Nolte's performances alone, it's really, really good. Uh, I, I, I can go back and forth on Juliette Lewis. I thought she starts off the movie not great, but as the movie progresses, she becomes really, really ca captivating. Yeah, I, I will agree with you. She has moments, and I, again, I, it's it's almost hard to say. I'm almost imagining this in my head that you can almost sort of see the first scenes that she filmed versus the last scenes that she filmed. Cause movies are often made out of chronological order and then stitched together later. 
because there are scenes where she feels much more new and uneven. And then there's scenes where she feels very seasoned and very in it. Um, And I think it's really, again, I, I'm not going to even really put the blame on her. I'm going to go back to the writing that that character of Daniel, it's probably, it, it probably should have addressed this earlier. I feel like is one of the most uneven written characters in the film. Like the wife is pretty steady in who she is. The husband is pretty steady in who he is. Max Cady's definitely steady in who he is. The daughter kind of floats from being sort of just like sweet, innocent airhead kind of kid to also being sort of like not manipulative, but like, Almost a, a sociopath. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to go that far, but like, like where she's kind of like, I'm mad at my parents, so therefore I'm just going to do like really stupid stuff that like you know like doesn't match up. You know, like like she's kind of got this like quasi sensual fascination with Max Katie, which doesn't really add up. You know, like and I don't know, like like there's just there's just scenes where like she feels really like airhead and there's like other scenes where she doesn't. So I don't know, it just kind of floats back and forth in a weird way. So I can't really tell if that's her or how she's being written. Yeah. But there's also like, there's that one scene where she's sitting on the bed and she's in her underwear and but that's what I'm talking about. Right. So like, that's like her kind of like acting sensual right. and, and, and her father's like, you know, put on some clothes. You're not a child anymore. Right. And, and then young, the next scene, that's not really why she's doing it. She's not dressed like that. Cause she thinks she's a child anymore. Right. But then the very next scene, she's dressed, you know, very, you know, youthful. I would even say like, like a little kid in, in a way. Um, yeah. I don't know. She's a little bit all over the place. Um, but Jessica Lang, I thought was really, really strong in the movie. Like I really enjoyed her character particularly. And at first, like I couldn't place her. I couldn't remember. Like, and then I was like, Oh my God, that's what's her face from American horror <laughs> story. And she just looks so different in this movie, but I really, really liked her character. I wish they gave her more to do at times. Like she just, you know, sort of floats in and out of scenes in a lot of cases. But, um, but overall, I really enjoyed her. Nick Nolte, he, he plays it pretty steady until he gets really, really Nick Nolte-ish. And he's like over the top at certain <laughs> points. And I'm like, oh, boy, this guy, is, he went too big in this couple of scenes. But, you know, yes, the performances are really good. Some of the cinematography is beautiful. Some of the cinematography is not so beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I the the thing about this movie that I I keep going back to is it doesn't feel like a Scorsese movie at all. Like at all. It really doesn't. It really, really doesn't without the, the one tie to Robert De Niro and kind of, you can tell that those two always work in a certain way together. But like this honest to goodness did not feel like a Scorsese movie to me. I think this one's a miss for him. I, as I mentioned, this is like his first foray into like kind of doing like the studio thing out of like the, the smaller budget mm-hmm. kind of like movies where he's like much more intimately connected to the initial story and everything like that. I feel like this is something that got handed off to him via Spielberg and that he like ran with it. But I don't feel like he completely I mean, obviously he made it his in a way, but I don't feel like. I feel like this is just a misfire for him. I don't feel yeah. like this is his normal fare, and I, I think it's just a bump in the road to other better movies that he's done before and after. Right. Agreed. 
All right, so that's going to wrap it up for us on Cape Fear. Um, We will be back in two weeks um, with our next box office 30 episode. Let me save you guys some voting, though, because it's my birthday in early December. And off this one, I can't trust you guys to vote anymore for for this next one. So um, our next movie is definitely going to be Hook, because I don't know (laughs) that you guys were going to vote for Star Trek for the undiscovered country, Beauty and the Beast, or again the Adams family. But if you were, guess what? You don't get to. I'm choosing Hook. He's I'm choosing Hook. Your toys away. He's choosing Hook because he hates me and he's torturing me. I'm choosing Hook because, honest to goodness, folks, and I've mentioned it before, this was my favorite ever childhood movie. So. Oh. I'm going to sit down. I tell you what, you want to get off the hook for this one entirely? Should I do this one with Zoe next month? <laughs> I actually thought about uh, seeing if she wanted to watch the movie with me and give, give me her thoughts on it. <laughs> well, I, I – I, um, Maybe I'll do that as a sub-segment. <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something. And, you know, it's funny because, yes, it is your birthday month, so I'm going to, you know – Give give in to your your wants in this, and I'm gonna sit through nine hours of hook. Um, but I I would like to share something with uh, with the listeners here, and I'm gonna do this a little early this time because I feel like it, and I'm kind of excited about it. So Pete and I have this little ongoing thing back and forth where every, our birthdays are exactly six months apart, and we get each other gifts for our birthdays, and 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 we have this little uh shopping bag or, or gift bag that we use to go back and forth with and neither it's very one of us remarkable, very it's, it, it, <laughs> we, we date it and everything and neither one of us right now knows where it is and um, one of these times it's going to come with an en- engagement ring <laughs> well <laughs> I, I might just have one up you on this one so check your phone real quick my friend because this is what you're getting for your birthday i'm telling you early oh here we go let me see Oh, got some Rangers game coming up. Yes, so <laughs> I, you and I are going to a Rangers game together. I have never been to a Rangers game. I've only ever been to Islanders games. I know that you are a diehard Ranger fan, and oh, I well, want you brought one of the last times around a, uh, a spare Jets jersey for me when you took me to my first Jets game. So I'll bring you a spare. Uh, Good, I don't Rangers own it. Jersey. <laughs> No Rangers gear whatsoever. But yes, you and I will be going to a Rangers game um, not long after your birthday. But yeah, so uh, I wanted to give that to you a little bit early because I've I've been excited about it. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Yeah, that is hopefully a a fun thing for you guys to to catch that uh, too. Um, Thank you very much. That's really awesome. For the uh, Edmonton Oilers too, which is a a great team. That's – Gretzky's old team, you know. Yes. <laughs> it, it's it's like I couldn't. I, I tried to get Rangers Islanders because I'm a. a, a oh, Islanders that's tricky. Fan. Yeah, that's like the Subway series. <laughs> yeah, but basically, I had to sell a kidney to do that. I was like, I, I couldn't get it. <laughs> Popkin sucks. <laughs> oh, God. Any Rangers Islanders people out there will understand that.
Every everybody outside of the tri-state is going to be like, "What just happened? Was he whistling?" You know how petty the Rangers fans are. Hopkin was a player in like the seventies or eighties, and he injured one of the Rangers players at that time. I don't even remember who the Ranger was anymore. And so since then, every single game. They used to do it on Oregon. They'd play that that part I whistled on Oregon, and then a whole crowd would yell, Potkin sucks. But in recent years, they tried to discourage it, so now just loud whistling fans keep the thing going. <laughs> That's how petty they are. After, like, decades, they're, they're I, I, still doing that. I'm very excited. I've never been to – I've been to every other New York sport team game except for the Rangers, and I wanted to – like – Instead of like getting you something I wanted to have an experience we could do together, and I know you love the Rangers, and we haven't been to a sporting event. Yeah, I, look, I haven't been to a Rangers game in like a couple of years now, and I was going fairly regularly there yeah. for a bit. So I was like yeah. calling them and starting to ask season ticket information. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that'll be kind of fun, and you know we'll be able to hang out together, and maybe we'll I'll bring my Zoom recorder and rec- we'll record some silly. New York City anecdotes while we're there. Yes. Because if anybody is tuning into a 30-year-old movie podcast, that they definitely want to hear the the New York Rangers (laughs) anecdotes. Yes. (laughs) Gotta have it. Well, tell them where they can find us if they want to tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) So, okay. You can find us on our social media at box office three zero on the Twitters and the Facebooks and box office T H I R T Y on Instagram. That's box office 30 on Instagram. And you can go to our website, box office three zero.com and check out our crazy amount of back issues that we have. What do we have? Like episodes of how many? We have episode 34, I think 34. God, we talked, 34 times about movies. <laughs> Crazy. And then you can also go to our Tee Public store and get some cool merch. It's getting kind of chilly out. I might be ordering myself a hoodie, you know, <laughs> get myself a, a Black Friday deal of a, of a Box Office 30 hoodie for myself because that's when this episode is going to be dropping on Box Office 30. Yeah, so. yeah. This will be dropping on uh, Black Friday. So uh, for anybody listening, happy post-Thanksgiving and hoping you're getting your deals out there. <laughs> yeah, so while you're shopping, check us out and listen to our podcast and, and order some merch if you feel like it. We don't see more than about four cents on the, you know, $50, but there you go. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> uh, you, you can edit that part out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but anyway, as always, you know, thank you so much for listening. I honestly can say that I was pleasantly surprised with reviewing this movie. I thought it was going to be much more horrible than it was. It Agreed. was only slightly less horrible than I thought yeah, it was. Yeah, I was bummed that we weren't doing uh, Adam's Family, but but it ended up fine. <laughs> but when Box, when, uh, when Box Office 30 gets around to uh, Adam's Family values, we're just going to veto all of you and we'll do that one instead. <laughs> <laughs> there we bye, go. Bye, friends. Have a good one. Bye, friends. Cockamamie is a great word. <laughs> <laughs>